with Emma Williams. Good morning, teachers everywhere. How are you feeling today? Are you ready for Blue Monday? Today, I'm exploring some concrete, practical tips for what you can do to help to ensure yourself against depression and low mood. It's that time of year again, so let's cheer ourselves up. Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. Good morning. You're listening to the Saturday Brunch Show with me, Emma Williams. And it is yet another overcast, grey, freezing morning. I actually, you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's horrendously foggy out there. And you know what? At this time of year, I find it really hard. It's a tough time of year in schools, but it's a tough time of year for all of us, whatever profession we're in and whatever role we play in life. Now, however you're feeling this morning, I hope it's not exacerbated by a hangover. But if you work at number 10 Downing Street, then that is, of course, seemingly inevitable and written into your contract. Yes, our illustrious Supremo is struggling once again to swim against the tide, to backpedal away from what must surely be the end game of his political career. Amidst allegations of Friday wine day during lockdown, amongst all the other allegations that he's already apologised for. I think it's fair to say that apologising is usually the death knell for any senior politician. But apologising for a one-off error of judgement, which then turns out to be a judgement you were making on a weekly basis, has surely got to be a stake through the heart. What is he doing? And where is he, more to the point? Self-isolating, we're told, because a member of his family has tested positive. Hmm. Currently, the rules say he doesn't have to self-isolate unless he tests positive. So it's a conveniently overcautious interpretation of his own government's guidelines, to say the very least. Or perhaps, dare I say it, a fabrication. Now, while I'm on the subject of Boris Johnson, and I will get on to my topic for today soon, but to be honest, ranting about Boris Johnson is cathartic for my mental health, so I'm going to continue. While I'm on the subject, I feel the need to address the fact that he went to Eton. And regular listeners will know that my show last week explored elite public schools, focusing on Eton as the most famous, the oldest and the most powerful. Now, just yesterday I came across this, but it was actually shared on social media a good ooh, uh, two years ago. Um, yeah, two, just over two years ago uh, by someone called Damien Furness. And I thought this was very interesting. He says, I have a confession to make. I knew David Cameron at university and quite liked him. 
Sure, he displayed all of the limitations of his upbringing, but in our time doing the same subject in the same year and living on the same street, he always seemed more interested in smoking cheroots and listening to prog rock than the Bullingdon boy antics he's now remembered for. Even when I sabotaged his college beagle pack, he took it in good humour. I've no idea what that is, by the way. I think it must be an Oxford thing. I bet he's a bit of a stoner now, Damien continues, holed up in his shepherd's hut, giving the lamb dies down on Broadway another spin. But, he says, I have different memories of Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson, who was the first Oxford student I met when I was at Balliol College for interview in 1984. I was a rural working class kid with a stammer from a state school which hadn't prepared me for the experience. But I was bright and well read, with more interest in and knowledge of my subjects of philosophy, politics and economics than most of my public school rivals could muster. My session with the Dons was scheduled for first thing after breakfast, meaning I was staying the night and had an evening to kill in the college bar Johnson was propping up with his coterie of acolytes, whose only apparent role in life was to laugh at his jokes. Three years older than me, and halfway through the second class degree in classics, he coasted through with the diligence he later applied to journalism and red box briefings, you'd have expected him to play the ambassador role, welcoming and inspiring member of his college. Instead, his piss-taking was brutal. In the course of the pint I felt obliged to finish, he mocked my speech impediment, my accent, my school, my dress sense, my haircut, my background, my father's work as a farm worker and garage proprietor, and my prospects in the scholarship interview. His only motivation was to amuse his posh boy mates. In short, he demonstrated all of the character flaws that make him unfit to be our Prime Minister. Nothing I see today suggests he has changed. He is not Falstaff, he is Faust. And if you're an ordinary working person and think he has your interests at heart, think again. So, pretty powerful stuff there from somebody who met both Cameron and Johnson at university. Very interesting. And for me, it sums up the difference between the boys that I spent time interviewing on my show last week, boys who have benefited from the extraordinary opportunities afforded to them by Eton College, who grabbed those with both hands and who have become and continue to become self-reflective, intelligent and sensitive young men ready to take their place in the world. Contrast that with a man who revels in his privilege and yet fails to recognise it fails to grasp the extraordinary advantages that life has handed to him on a plate, and rather than use those advantages for the greater good, seeks to belittle those that do not share in the same good fortune. This is the true measure of character. Not every man that passes through Eton's hallowed corridors as a direct result of their background will turn out like Boris Johnson. And to finish my tirade, and in what I think is an important defence of Eton, since he is such an appalling advertisement for it, here is a quotation from Boris Johnson's own school report 
written by his master at Eton College in 1982. Boris really has adopted a disgracefully cavalier attitude to his classical studies. It is a question of priorities, which most of his colleagues have no difficulty in sorting out. Boris sometimes seems affronted when criticised for what amounts to a gross failure of responsibility and surprised at the same time that he was not appointed captain of the school for next half. I think he honestly believes that it is churlish of us not to regard him as an exception, one who should be free of the network of obligation which binds everyone else. That's from Martin Hammond, Master in College, April 1982. Okay, well enough of Boris, and on to my topic for today. Welcome to those who are listening live. I see uh, we've got Sarah, we've got Tom, uh, and somebody whose name I don't recognise, but maybe I do know them, but I just don't recognise their handle. Now, there's a reason why the third Monday in January, which this year falls this Monday, the 17th, has been dubbed Blue Monday. Seemingly never-ending long nights, all the festivities over, third week back at work. And it's also the time when, let's be honest, most of us have already broken all of our New Year's resolutions. And we perhaps begin to suspect that this won't be the year we become the fittest, healthiest, most productive, successful and desirable versions of ourselves after all. My plan for today's show is twofold. Firstly, I want to share with you 20 practical strategies that I have drawn from a book that I've read and reread over the years, a book that I have found completely life-changing. Now, I'm not going to bore you with my own mental health, but I think it's probably important for you to know that I have suffered from depression in the past, was medicated for it and have no shame in sharing that. I share it with students and the level of surprise they express when I do so is interesting. I think firstly, it shows that most adults don't share such things with them. And to be clear, I'm not an oversharer in school. I'm not one of those, hey kids call me Jeff kind of teachers. I'm quite hands off, but I don't see that it's anything to be ashamed of. So I mention it in passing when I'm leading sessions on mental health and we have a lot of them. It's a topic that is becoming increasingly high profile in mainstream schools. Also, I think students are surprised because I perhaps don't fit their idea of what a person who has suffered from depression looks and acts like, something I'll perhaps come back to later in the show. I think it's important to say I have been there when it comes to depression because I don't want anyone to think that the suggestions I'm going to share this morning are flippant or that I think it's easy to recover from depression. To be absolutely crystal clear, clinical depression is an illness and a brain state. And I don't think for me personally, 
there was a likelihood of recovery without medication. So if you are feeling low and that feeling has been going on for some weeks or months and is not simply a reaction to current stresses or the blooming miserable weather that we've been having or the dark mornings and evenings, if your mood is consistently low, if you don't enjoy the things you used to enjoy, if you find it painful to be around people whose mood is elevated, if you feel like you're in a little bubble of sadness that you can't burst out of, go to your doctor immediately and ask for help. The treatments available now are frankly incredible and there is no reason why anyone should suffer. Once the meds have kicked in, and with modern treatment that can be remarkably quick, you will then be able to access the suggestions from Raj Pasod that I'm going to share today. If you're in the depths of depression, it's incredibly hard to find the energy to make changes in your life. And even more so, it's actually nigh on impossible to even imagine a situation in which you will feel better. Believe me, I've been there. And I distinctly remember having taken the first couple of tablets, so way too soon to feel any different, despite the way that it's always portrayed in the movies, which really grinds my gears. I distinctly remember saying to a friend on the phone that I thought it was probably just nonsense and that life was just a bit rubbish. Well, that, of course, was because I was depressed. And within 10 days, it was like someone had switched all the lights on and I could see all the opportunities in front of me. So I hope that's clear. Go to the doctor. Anyhow, years later, and after feeling I was more than ready to try life without the antidepressants, I decided to read a book which I have here next to me, my little baby, called Staying Sane by Raj Pasod. Now, this book, when it was written, which was quite some time ago, was incredibly radical. Raj Pasod was and is both a psychologist and a psychiatrist. Now, that's unusual because mental health is carved up basically divided between psychologists who work with people who are defined as mentally well and psychiatrists who work with people who are defined as mentally ill and are able to prescribe. And it seems extraordinary. And it is what's even more extraordinary is that it took Persaud to point this out, that that's actually quite bizarre. And he said, one of the problems uh, that has bugged him for years is that nobody was studying the process of how people move between being mentally well and being mentally unwell and how they get back again. And that's partly because of the way mental health services are carved up into these divisions. And he said what's even more scandalous is that most psychiatrists, in his experience, don't actually even believe that people can recover from severe mental illness. He doesn't agree. And he says that he's seen patients bring themselves back from that brink. And he talks about that in his book. But really what the book's about is how to try to ensure yourself against mental illness. So it's not actually about recovery necessarily, but it's about strategies to maintain good mental health. Now, the book appealed to me, I think, 
because I have a phobia of all things woo. I tend to avoid the sort of self-help spiritual stuff, anything that kind of has a whiff of, um, I don't know, um, anything, as I say, that's maybe um, of a spiritual bent uh, uh, and the sort of things that you see um, on Instagram, you know, little quotations with an inspiring view. Um, I have a real loathing for that kind of thing. Although, Persode would, I think, tell me that I might want to consider being more open-minded, and we'll come on to that later. But the book appealed to me because it was written by a qualified psychiatrist, full of scientific studies, and the references are there if you wanted to follow them up. And yet, it is a practical self-help book for the layman. All of that said, if you're not a big reader, it is quite a tome to get through, hence I have distilled it into 20 individual life hacks. So more of a two minute read than several weeks, uh, which is what it took me the first time I read it. And I share those 20 life hacks with the kids, with my students, and I've shared it with them until they have become very familiar with them. It's my view that we're still getting mental health wrong in schools. We spend a lot of time destigmatizing, and I like to think I'm doing my bit by being open about the fact that I've suffered from depression in the past. But my point and Raj Persaud's point in this book is that we spend all our time destigmatizing and telling people it's okay to suffer from mental health issues, but no time at all telling people how to keep themselves well. And this is the point. One of the things that Perso talks about at the beginning of his book is the fact that you can stop the average person from any demographic in the street and ask them what they should be doing to keep themselves physically fit. And they probably know that they should be doing more exercise, eating less sugar, drinking less, not smoking, you name it, they've probably got a rudimentary grasp of those basics. That's not to say they'll be doing it, but they probably know what they should be doing in theory. Whereas stop even your most well-educated person on the street and ask them what they should be doing to protect their mental health. And the best they can usually come up with is oh, try and get enough sleep. And it's absolutely true. Nobody has a clue. And that's because I don't think people really believe that it's something they should be thinking about. And I don't think people believe that mental health is precious and that we need to be thinking about how we ensure ourselves against that mental health breaking down, becoming fragile. Persaud argues that this belief in society is perpetuated by the way we carve up the healthcare system dividing it into those who work with the mentally ill and those who work with the mentally well, or to use psychiatrist terms, and to be frank, the insane and the sane. So just listen to his chapter headings. How awesome is this? The chapter headings are how to be happy. Am I insane or is it everyone else? Anyone who goes to see a therapist needs his head examined. Hell is other people me 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 crying is good for you so you think you are sane i will survive crisis what crisis 
and is prevention possible? So as I said, it's quite a tome. It's almost 600 pages of advice and explanation, followed by 100 pages of references. But I'm going to give you my Reader's Digest summary, and it's gold dust. Please remember, I am not saying these strategies will solve anyone's mental health issues if they are already gripped by depression or anxiety. To repeat myself from earlier, if that's the case, you must seek help. And strategy number 20, the very last one, will remind you of that at the end. But these are strategies which Persaud argues will help to protect you from what life throws at you and thus reduce the likelihood of you suffering from severe mental health problems. They're things that some people do quite naturally, perhaps because they've had a good model at home or perhaps instinctively. And that's one of the things that Persaud explores in the book, why it is that some people become unwell and others don't, despite undergoing severe stresses in their life. Okay, so here are Persaud's strategies from the book. Number one, choose close friends and partners wisely. Are they people who can and would be there for you in difficult circumstances? Now, he spends quite a lot of time talking about this, and he had some frankly radical suggestions. For example, he suggests testing your partner in the early stages of a relationship. So if you find somebody that you uh, decide might be the partner for you, the trouble with forming long-term relationships is we all tend to pre present only our very best self at the beginning, and then the reality of all of our weaknesses and um, difficulties come to the fore later on. But so says that's a really bad strategy. He says that you need to find out right from the start if your partner's going to be able to cope with supporting you when you need it. So in a controlled way, you need to let your less perfect self out and reveal it to your partner towards the beginning before you're in too deep. When you think about it, actually, that's quite logical. So I gave it a go. I'm not going to tell you the details because it's very personal. But yeah, I would recommend. So that's strategy number one. Number two, do not invest everything in one person. Maintaining and developing friendships and interests outside of any one relationship that you form cushions you against the loss should the relationship come to an end. So again, good advice probably advice that most people would agree with. Um, however, whether most people follow it is another question. But he's very frank about the realities of life, um, advises you to um, never assume that your relationship won't break down, or to assume that you won't lose that person. And therefore, you need to make sure that you have a, a network to catch you if that happens. Number three, and related to that, be open-minded and open to new relationships. Try to widen your social circle beyond one type of person. Challenge yourself by getting to know people with different experiences and opinions. So I think 
he's saying there that it's very easy to become locked into assumptions about what kind of person is good for you and maybe opening up your mind to a wider range of people can be quite powerful i think uh, this is something i've come to gradually uh, throughout life so for example i don't have a religious faith and when i was very young i simply couldn't comprehend having a close friendship with somebody who does have a religious faith i just thought we're just not going to work um i now completely don't don't think that at all and i have several people in my life who are becoming close friends who i know are very religious and it's absolutely fine so that's just one example strategy number four wherever possible move on from friendships and relationships with people that you judge to have a negative impact on you now this he spends a lot of time going through in the book because he knows it's quite radical now none of us would hesitate to advise somebody to move on from for example a violent relationship or uh, you know somebody who is using coercive control um yeah that seems obvious although not everyone does do so uh, so that in itself uh, is not as easy as it sounds but Persaud actually being a lot more radical than that he's saying you know what if somebody isn't supporting you if they're not make, enriching your life uh, and they're not a positive influence get rid of them he's really quite clear about it he 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 says no guilt move on dump them and i must admit when i read that section i was quite shocked but the more i thought about it the more i thought he really had a point why are you hanging out with people who aren't good in the long term for your mental health so i did i ditched a couple of people i've got quite good at doing it now <laughs> um obviously it's not always that easy family members can be harder uh, but generally speaking if they're just friends yeah pretty easy to ditch um and it it certainly is quite empowering radical but empowering so think about it so those first four are about relationships and then he moves on strategy number five is about mood control he says research shows that you can influence your own mood and take control of your emotions it's not that people with sound mental health never feel down it's that they take action to counteract this feeling many of them instinctively now again to emphasize if you are suffering from depression this isn't possible I am not, and Persaud is not on any level saying, pull yourself together. That in fact, he spends a significant amount of time in the book talking about how that strategy is very damaging. And I'll come back to that in a bit. What he's talking about is again, imagine you're mentally well, but we all have low days. It's about spotting that and picking up on it and actually taking action to counteract it. Whereas I think certainly as someone who I know in the past has had a tendency towards depression, that actually was news to me. I didn't realize that that's what other people do, that they instinctively will pick themselves up and do something that will make themselves feel better. Whereas I think those of us that have a tendency towards depression tend to sort of slide into it and say, well, it's perfectly normal that I'm feeling like this and, and just kind of go with it. Whereas actually what people, other people do is they tend to 
take action to counteract that mood, uh, which I thought was uh, really powerful. So uh, Seema's just asking, which book is this? Yes, uh, I must keep repeating the title. It is Staying Sane by Raj Basode. Buy it, it's awesome. So that's mood control. Number six is self-reward. Do things that you enjoy, little things that you enjoy on a regular basis. Make time for hobbies and interests that make you feel good, such as a sport or spending time with animals. Now, of course, this relates to self-care at work. And Genevieve in her show last night addressed this. And her guest at one point encouraged listeners to say no to things they couldn't manage. Really important. Uh, that idea of not taking on too much at work so that you have time for self-reward. And then linked to self-reward, the guest said something that really struck me. She said, don't let people lie to you and tell you that self-care is selfish. And I found myself thinking, who would do that to themselves or to someone else? What an unhealthy frankly vile thing to to impose on somebody that this this idea that self-care is selfish I mean it's it's just an absolute nonsense nobody again would say that about physical health nobody would accuse somebody of being self-obsessed or selfish because they eat healthily I mean for heaven's sake uh, it, it, it's just an utter nonsense so self-reward and self-care a hugely important strategy Now, number seven, become more complex, he says. Learn new skills as often as you can. Put yourself out of your comfort zone and don't shy away from new experiences. Now, the reason for this, he says, is twofold. One, learning new skills raises your self-esteem. And two, this is the really clever one. Putting yourself in challenging new environments and circumstances is the only way to allow your brain to practice dealing with stress and anxiety in a safe context. That's hugely powerful. And I repeat this to the students as often as they will let me, because I think we can all agree that anxiety is, is an epidemic amongst young people. And I think there is all sorts of reasons for it. But one of the things that concerns me is young people who are not able to put themselves into new circumstances and into they're not that they don't have that resilience. And I wonder if it's to do with uh, family patterns, if people have used avoidance as a technique, or that's a little bit scary and upsetting, so we'll, we'll take you out of that situation. It's such a poor strategy for mental health. So it's not allowing young people to develop that resilience. You don't know what life is going to throw at you throughout your life, throughout your young life, your adult life. And it's really important to put your brain under stress. It's really important to let your brain practice that process. And that, if you think, so for example, young people are going to face those exams. It's really important that they know how to do that. And the only way to, to, to get through it is to practice. You have to allow your brain to get used to stress and anxiety. So become more complex. Put yourself out of your comfort zone. Try a new skill. 
it's really good for your brain. Number eight, he says, use positive self-talk. Now, this relates a little bit to my, my shock about what people would say about self-care. So partly, positive self-talk is um, basically you become your own therapist. So when a thought pops into your head, um, a negative thought, the idea that um, a cognitive behavioural therapist would advise you is to practice replacing that with a positive thought. Now, of course, that's a lot easier than it sounds. It's very easy to be glib about that. But what you can do is think very hard about the way you talk to yourself. Something that I say to the students is don't talk to yourself the way you would not talk to a friend who was upset. If you're feeling upset and low, don't give yourself a kick up the backside because that's not what you would do to a friend. So think about talking to yourself in the same way that you would talk to a friend who was upset. So you would start with giving them, giving them the space, say, oh, you're feeling really bad and that's horrible. I'm really sorry, but it'll pass. And then, you know, give them, give you yourself that time and space and then be kind to yourself. Don't go pull yourself together because let's face it, we'd never say that to somebody else and we know it because we know it wouldn't work. It's not going to help. So why do you say it to yourself? So he gives he, he gives various advice. So um, when you're upset and distressed, you can basically self-soothe and you can say to yourself, you're feeling really bad at the moment. That's because X has happened or perhaps that's because X has happened and it's reminding you of something else that is um, really personal for you and upsetting for you, but it will pass. Ride it out and it will pass. So you can be that reassuring voice in your own head. Teaching has a really bad reputation for mental health. And I remember when I uh, first joined the profession or I was, I was signed up for teacher training because I've always been quite should I say almost politicised but well open about the fact that I have depression didn't hide it on the application form because I didn't see why I should and uh, within a couple of weeks I was summoned by the by occupational health you know are you sure you're you want to become a teacher you know it's a big scary profession um and actually what I said in the interview is that well I was just starting my training at that point I said actually it's been very good for me so at that point I was just coming out of depression and I found it actually very useful to be doing a job where I had to get out there I had to think about people other than myself because um, I've heard Monty Don of all people say this actually he's been very open about his battle with depression and he said really articulately one of the great humiliations of depression is how selfish it makes you you are so wrapped up in your own world that you really can't think about other people. And I think as you come out of it, it's really empowering to be thinking about others. So teaching was really good for me from that point of view. And actually, again, as you're coming out of it, it can be really good for you because you have to pin a smile on your face and actually that can then have an impact. Now, just today or yesterday, uh, Barry Smith was tweeting about this and he was tweeting about it in relation to staff and students. So he says, perhaps somewhat controversially, he says, pupils practice being miserable a lot. 
body language, facial expression, tone of voice, inaudible monosyllabic responses, deliberately ignoring adults. They do this to fit in with peer expectations. These are well-practiced habits and become a bedrock of your self-perception. Interesting. I, d I don't know how much I agree with him, but it, I, it was, I'm still thinking about it. I read it a few hours ago and it really did make me think that sort of teenage persona that is so important for them to portray outwardly, does that then reflect back inwardly? Really interesting. But then he also talked about um, teachers. So he says, how are you, I ask? And the replies are often tired, stressed, or not too bad, or glad it's Friday, or I need a coffee, it's too early, oh, it's Monday. When your habitual responses practice negativity, what impact does that have on your day and those around you? And again, I thought that was really interesting. And that does relate to self-talk. It's something I tried to persuade my husband of. Whenever I say, how are you? He always says, not too bad. <laughs> and I've tried to say to him, it's really important to, to think about the language you use and try and make it more positive. But he doesn't listen, so I don't see why you should. Anyway, strategy nine, exercise. I know, I know. But that's what he says. He says, take regular exercise, preferably doing something you enjoy. And then related to that, strategy 10, this is the one the kids can always remember, dance. Some studies show that music is as effective as exercise in alleviating stress and low mood, and dancing combines both. Great advice. So put on those tunes and throw yourself around the room. It's really good for you. 11. Use relaxation techniques. Download a self-hypnosis audio file. I've changed that. He said buy a CD, but that dates the book. Um, everyone suffers from anxiety from time to time and learning how to relax so that you can get to sleep and or control your rising panic is as an essential life tool. So he says, learn those relaxation techniques as an insurance policy against those times when you are going to feel stressed and panicky. Arguably, if you do that, you will cope better in those situations. Good advice. Number 12, he says, consider your life philosophy. Is your religion important to you or can you find other ways to feed your soul? Some people find art, music or the natural world can feel like a spiritual experience. Now I'd have to go back and reread this section of the book to remind myself but as I recall it he actually makes a good case for being religious <laughs> and um, as I mentioned earlier I don't have a religious faith and I thought well I, I can't really develop one just for my mental health I'm not sure that's how it works <laughs> I mean nobody likes a hypocrite particularly not God from what I've been told about him um, so I don't, I don't think that's going to work but he gave uh, the classic philosophers analogy if you are on your own in a boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and everyone is lost to you, what keeps you going? I mean, it's pretty extreme, but he's got a point. So his point is people who have a religious faith fare better in that kind of extreme situation than others, which did give me pause for thought. But as I say, I'm not sure you can just cultivate a faith. Um, maybe I'll have a, a, a religious experience at some point and, and I'll be gifted with one. Number 13, 
avoid recreational drugs. The kids love this one uh, when I share it with them. Um, and I try because no, everyone hates a nag. And I, uh, what I try to say to them is, I know everyone says, you know, drugs are bad. Da, 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 and most there's a lot of scaremongering and a lot of focus on they might kill you. Well, true, they might probably won't. They probably won't. But what they may well do is cause depression or even severe psychosis, especially in young people. And that's hugely important. And I really take my time emphasising that with the students. If you take the kind of cannabis, for example, that is commonly available now, in which the levels of THC are incredibly high, if you take that as a very young person while your brain is still developing, you are taking a huge risk. So recreational drugs, really dangerous for mental health. 14, take time alone. Reflect on how much time you spend alone. Do you spend too much time or does the thought terrify you? So again, this is all about prepping yourself for all the different situations of life. Um, you will be alone. You need to be okay with that. Or is it something you crave a little bit too much? And should you be pushing yourself out of your comfort zone? So I've got somebody calling in called Praveen. So I'm just going to say hello to him and uh, see. Hello, teacher talk. Good evening. Hello. Hi, hello, teacher talk. Good evening, ma'am. Hello there. So do you have something to uh, comment about uh, the show? Um, I'm the first, uh, just, uh, this is the first time I'm speaking with you. This is the first time, ma'am. So I think uh, this show is very good. Oh, fantastic. Yes. Where are you just, calling uh, from? I'm from India. Oh, wow. What time is it? It's a five. At 5 p.m. at the evening time, ma'am. Ah, okay. So it's about quarters to 12 here. So um, is mental health something that is dealt with in schools in your country? Is that something that you teach the students about? Uh, no, no, no. I'm not a student. I'm a student present. I'm a graduate. I'm a graduating present. Okay. Okay. Oh, well, thank you so much thank for calling so in. Much. And uh, I'm going to uh, move on. Okay. So, um... Where were we? Taking time alone. Yeah, now, number 15, listen to others. Be observant and listen to the reflections of others, particularly those that care about you. Others can often see the signs of ill health in us before we do so ourselves. Hugely important. If I think I could name at least three people that told me I was depressed before I even considered it, I just thought they were nuts. Ironic. Um, yeah, really important. So now, having been there and come round again, I've got a very different attitude. If somebody observes, oh, you, you know, you seem a bit down, I do listen. I think, oh, gosh, okay. I wonder if I need to take some uh, strategies to make sure that I'm not going there again. So, really important to listen to people that care about you. Now, link to that. Number 16, take criticism, but don't stew over it. Again, easier said than done. Learn to take criticism in relation purely to the issue being criticised, not as a reflection on you as a whole person. Now that comes back to resilience again. It's important to learn from what other people say. Take it on the chin. Sometimes we do need to be told some, some stuff. I've had people say things to me um, 
that I definitely need to reflect on about how I come across, for example. Uh, apparently, I'm quite scary. Uh, all sorts of things that, again, in the past, I found quite upsetting and quite hard to hear. Now, I just think, mm, okay, fair enough. Yeah, I need to remember that. It's really important. Strategy 17, read. Consider using self-help books to help you resolve your own issues. Now, of course, that's what I was doing, reading Persode, but he, I think, would admonish me for being a little too closed-minded about other books that might have helped me as well. 18, write. Consider writing down your feelings or past traumas in a diary. Research shows that regular use of this method can be as or more effective than many forms of counselling. I mean, wow, this is all from research. So just the process of writing your feelings down can be as good as just sharing them with a counsellor. Now, I know that actually this is a strategy that a lot of good counsellors use. For example, somebody that has um, traumatised you, you can write them a letter. If you're really ballsy, you can send it. Um, but normally the advice is write them a letter and then you can tear it up. And actually the process is really powerful and we have the research to prove it. Strategy 19, he's being radical again. Be realistic. Unhappiness is an unavoidable and normal part of life. If you're struggling to cope with overwhelming feelings of sadness over a significant period of time, that's when to seek help. But just feeling sad is quite normal. And that, again, I think it's really important. The students are often quite shocked when I talk to them about this because I think it's not something that adults share with them. But we all know it's the reality. Final strategy, number 20, is outside help. So recognising, as I said uh, at the beginning, if your low mood is persistent over a long period of time and you think you need help, that's the time to get it. And then he says, if you decide to seek therapy, choose wisely. Opt for He, he advocates for CBT um, because at the time when he wrote the book, uh, that had been proved uh, to be the most effective. I don't know what the latest research shows, but certainly CBT is amazingly powerful uh, with certain types of depression and with anxiety. Um, but it's important to explore the kind of therapy that you think would be right for you. And that is largely the sort um, that works. So if it's not working, move on to a different therapist. So I share these strategies on a regular basis with students and I actually use retrieval practice to test them on what they can remember. Um, so for a regular do now in PSHE, I ask them to write down as many of the strategies as they can recall and they're getting better and better at doing so. And I really hope it will make a difference to them. Uh, Tom Bennett, whom I interviewed on my show a few weeks ago, shared a study that he helped to write in 2018 on mental health in schools. This was a study led by the DfE and it took a close look at how schools and mental health intersect. And it found there to be a lot of well-meant but ineffective strategies going on. Inspirational speakers before exams, feel-good positive thinking, etc., and that had no discernible impact on the students' mental health outcomes in the long term. It also found that the most direct way schools can promote good mental health and reduce risk factors for poor mental health 
was to create school cultures where students and staff were safe, which were calm and where everyone was treated with dignity and engaged in meaningful activities. Now, it sounds obvious, but you wouldn't believe the number of professionals, most of them not teachers, arguing against it. So the report found as well that the big danger was non-expert practitioners trying to diagnose or treat mental health issues. That's a job for a trained professional. So Tom summarised the report's findings that there's overwhelming evidence that calm schools where everyone feels safe and valued are a massively positive factor in student and staff mental health. So powerful stuff. So we're going to take a short break now. Uh, we are going to go to the news. Uh, we're going to take a message from our sponsors and there's a tech briefing as well. And then we're going to focus on Persode's strategies five and six, mood control and self-reward. And we're going to cheer ourselves up for the rest of the show. So don't go away. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Saturday the 15th of January is the deadline for applications to primary schools in England. Parents with children due to start school in September 2022 must go through their local authority to apply for places at their chosen primary schools. In figures released on the Department for Education's blog Education Hub, it is highlighted that 91.8% of families were offered their first choice of primary school in 2021, with 98% receiving offers from one of their top three choices. The website details advice on how to access applications and information on how places are allocated in line with schools' admissions criteria. In Northern Ireland, a profoundly deaf pupil from County Antrim is campaigning for a sign language act after being made aware of how other people in the hearing loss community are supported outside of the province. Alanis Miller is currently studying A-levels in Life and Health Sciences and Mathematics, she hopes to study health and social care and social policy at university and has applied to Ulster University and the University of Edinburgh. During the application process, Alanis was made aware that it was not guaranteed 
that a British Sign Language interpreter would be available for lectures at Ulster University. However, if Alanis was to study in Edinburgh, an interpreter would be guaranteed due to the Sign Language Act in Scotland. Alanis has now begun a campaign appealing for the introduction of a Sign Language Act in Northern Ireland. In a letter to the Lord Mayor of Belfast City Council, she stated that it was important to promote access and that no deaf student should experience the frustrations of being held responsible for their own support needs. The campaign has been praised by the Lord Mayor of Belfast City Council and the head teacher of the secondary school Alanis attends. The Evening Standard reports that hundreds of thousands of pupils will be guaranteed careers advice from the age of 11 if a proposed new law continues to be backed by MPs. The Education Careers Guidance in Schools Bill has cleared the House of Commons with an unopposed third reading and will now undergo further scrutiny in the House of Lords. If the bill is successful, all schools across England will have to guarantee careers guidance to pupils from Year 7, including those who attend academies. In an article on the website Monitor, Emery Marakthor writes about the impact of the pandemic on school children in Uganda. Many children have only just returned to classrooms this month, although relief is expressed by many that this long-awaited return is now a reality. Whilst there is no telling if the return to schools will be disrupted further, the majority are happy to be back, although Uganda's education leaders state that they will continue to ask, what can we do to improve educational opportunities for our children. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Last week I looked at some free apps for the New Year's resolution of getting fit and healthy. This week I tried a few things out and I'm ready to present my findings. First up, the free version of MyFitnessPal. There's an old age saying that 90% of fitness is in the kitchen. If you want to get in shape, you have to have the right building blocks to do so. With this in mind, I set out to log everything I ate and for good measure, I even broke out the scales to get portion sizes correct. My first discovery is that 45 grams of granola, the recommended portion size, is nothing like the portion I'd been having. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that it wouldn't even fill a hamster. Realising I was eating three or four times the portion I was supposed to has made me think about my other choices, so I ate the recommended 45 grams and logged the milk. I was surprised how easy it was to find foods in the search feature, even supermarket brands. The app gave me a calorie target based on my weight, height and goal I'd chosen. As I had a coffee, I decided to map out my day and stick to it to stop myself cheating. After a week of tracking, I reviewed what I was eating. I could see where most fat and calories were coming from, allowing me to consider, I'm not promising anything, where I could make changes. The question you want me to answer is, did I lose weight? The answer is yes, but I think my next experiment had the most impact on that. Over the break, I managed to fall asleep watching TV and woke up to an infomercial on a DVD box set to get fit in 60 days. 60 days sounds quite quick, but thinking about it, it's practically two months. However, I did a bit of research and found a program that didn't need any weights or equipment, just floor space. I picked up the Insanity Workout series for around £35 on Amazon. My thinking being, you'd pay that for a month in a gym and I get to keep this forever. Now, I will confess, I do consider myself quite fit already. However, nothing could have prepared me for this. With Sean T, the amazing energetic coach screaming dig deeper and about 20 fitness professionals bouncing around what looked like a high school gym i've spent 45 minutes a day for the past six days jumping stretching squatting and definitely sweating being honest i was ready to tap out after the warm-up on day one i'm not gonna lie i used muscles i don't think i've ever used by day three even sitting still and lying in bed at night 
hurt. After pushing through to day on day seven, a rest day, the pain has subsided and I feel great. I just have one word of warning. If you're looking to do something like this, the long walk from the car park with load books may be impossible in the first week. Read the disclaimer, this is not to be taken lightly. In conclusion, I can't see myself keeping up my fitness pal once the novelty wears off, but it has made me look at my diet. A DVD fitness program for me is great. Finding 45 minutes is not always easy. And if you want to try before you buy, if you're a member of Netflix or Prime already, there's programs on there which are already in your subscription. Next week, we're back to tech for teaching. I'm Steve Woods, and this was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Absolutely perfect tech briefing there to link into what we're talking about. Self-care, uh, getting fit, and I thought it was quite funny as well. Really made me think I might give it a go because I briefly tried the uh, Couch to 5K and loved it. I absolutely loved it, but unfortunately had to stop because I discovered that having scoliosis of the spine and running does not combine too well. Um, and was basically in screaming agony went to my osteopath and she said well you know i could help you work and i went it's really not a good idea this running is it and she went no <laughs> so i thought okay and then i got on a bit of a sulk on because i really wanted to do it and so then i've just been sulking ever since but actually it sounds like this is quite similar because i what i liked about it is that voice in your ears telling you what to do so yeah i might give that a go right for the final part of my show we, as I said, are going to focus on strategies five and six, mood control, self-reward, cheering ourselves up. It is fair to say that teachers are fine storytellers and I work with some awesome people. So first of all, I'm going to introduce you to Nick Houghton, who is one of our English teachers where I work. I was reliably informed that Nick had a story to end all stories about getting stuck in Mexico with his daughter. So I went scampering off and asked him to tell me his story. A bit of background, Nick's been an English teacher with us for around eight years and his daughter, the beautiful and thus very appropriately named Bo, was in year 11 at the school we both work at at the time. So I went to have a chat with Nick in his classroom in the English block on Wednesday after school. And he gave me not only his Mexico story, but some comedy highlights of what it's like to teach English literature in a school. He cheered me up no end, and I hope he does the same for you. So here he is. It was three years ago this half term, we were going to Mexico to see her mother who now lives there. So slightly controversial trip anyway, I won't give the backstory on that, but there was a, you know, I didn't want to go, but I was going, I definitely didn't want to go. But I was taking my daughter to see her mother and we were going at half term, long way to go at half term there and back. And uh, we had a very cheap ticket, which came back via New York. And that'll be important later on. Um, so we, uh, we flew at some ungodly hour all the way to Mexico. We had the week, you know, the, the four days there. She spent quite a lot of time with her mum I didn't. Uh, and then we met up on the last night for dinner together just to finish. And it was Mexico, so it's boiling hot and the restaurants don't really have walls. People just kind of wander through. And I'd become very aware because I was staying in the sort of Tulum, in a cheap, very cheap hotel in Tulum. And you realise how much you stand out in a place like that. In fact, my, my ex had told me, she said, you know, everyone's 
with great respect, they're shorter than you, you know, you're a tall white man who's in Mexico and the struggle is real for people there. So clearly you've got something and it might be worth having. And that's, I think, what happened at the hotel, at the well, more sort of boarding house. Anyway, at this hotel, we were there, all had a few drinks. It was about 11.30 at night. We were flying at six in the morning, turned around to get my bag, which was the next minute, it's gone. Everything is gone because I've been carrying everything with me all week because you don't leave things around. Uh credit cards, phone, passports, both bow and eyes, everything had gone and we were leaving at six o'clock in the morning. This was about 11 o'clock at night and it's kind of, it's kind of an hour and a half journey to the airport. So the hotel didn't know anything, we couldn't find it, um, it was obviously gone. My ex said to me, you're not, you're not going home, you know, you haven't got a passport. But I, I couldn't stay there, neither could Bo. We had to head towards, so we headed towards the airport hour and a half down there, arrived at Cancun Airport, which is very much a, a holiday airport. Obviously, I had a little bit of a hangover. I had no sleep whatsoever because I've been panicking. It's about 110 degrees. We get up to the, get up to the front. <laughs> he said, you're, you're going nowhere, he said, obviously. But we, um, we can hold the flight for you for four days, right? And you need to go and get a work, go away and get a temporary passport and come back and we can hold the flight open for you. So I thought, well, that's okay then the consulate such as it was was shut because it was a Sunday so we had to find a hotel in what they call the federal zone which is kind of five miles around the airport where everything is three times the price it is everywhere else a taxi to go you know a mile is 40 quid which would be four pounds elsewhere so it's 40 quid to the hotel and then 150 and bearing in mind I've got no the only card I've got is my debit card I've got nothing else and then we were about to get paid you know I'm not a man who's got three or four thousand quid in his current account <laughs> So uh, we were running on the rims there, um, and I thought, it's okay, the, the ticket's open. So how did it go? We went to the consulate, and they said, I haven't queued there for a while, and this very strange place where just one person sat in there and said, well, we can't issue you any passports until you've got a flight. So I thought, I said, well, we've got a flight. She said, well, we need, a, um, we need some details on it. So back to the airport we go and uh, to say, what about this flight that's been kept open? And they, it's all in Cancun airport, it's all chaos, hardly anybody speaks English. Out the back and this woman, get, I'll sort your flight out. She gets on the phone and she's about 20 minutes speaking in Spanish. And I thought, this doesn't sound good at all. And uh, basically, because it was a cheap flight that went back via New York, and we hadn't turned up in New York, they closed the flight on us. So we had now had to oh. buy a new ticket. Now this was the absolute nadir of the trip, right? Because the ticket's closed, that, yeah, that's not happening. So now you can't get a passport and you haven't got a ticket. And I, I called my brother who works for British Airways and said, look, can you get me some sort of, no, we don't do Mexico. He said, even with the family, we can't do that. So uh, he said, I'll have a look around because I didn't have the internet or anything. He said, I'll have a look around. He came back to me half an, about an hour later and said, I've got something for you. It's uh, 6,000 pounds for the pair and it leaves in 10 days. And I said, well, what, that was, I just thought, what am I going to move in here? Or, so this is awful. I'm going to be living my life out in the Yucatan Peninsula. And uh, so that was that. And I, I just didn't know what to do. That, and that was the end of that day. And I went back to the hotel that night and I just thought, I don't know what we're going to do. I really don't. And of course, with your 15, nearly 16-year-old daughter there, she knows that there's a problem, but you can't be seen to be... You know, you've got to be... Well, there's no point in that anyway, but, you know, you've got to keep a brave face on so uh, we went back to the, in fact, she was brilliant in the end because she had all our old passport details and flight numbers on her phone. So when we got back to the consulate, I explained our problem. I said, look, I was right on the edge. I said, look, we can't get a flight. It's ridiculous prices. And I don't know what we're going to do. And then I said, um, so I just said to Bo, get on the internet. See if you can find, she said, get on the internet. These tickets are getting brokered all the time. 
So right in the consulate, Bo got onto the internet and she found something that was, uh, it was I think it was 2,300 quid for both of us leaving in six hours. Right, so we had to get everything together, passports and everything all sorted, and you have to do this exit cost that's 200 quid as well from Mexico. I'm never going there again. And, uh, Not surprised. No, so we got this ticket, but then I was trying to buy this ticket. I had just about enough money on my credit card, on my uh, debit card of sort of overdraft facility and so on. And then, of course, in the middle of paying for it, they said, well, your ticket's been declined. And I, your card rather's been declined. And I said, well, got the other phone on. It was like I was back in the market. You know, what's going on? <laughs> they said, um, well, we're getting this request from Mexico. So we blocked it. And I said, well, it's me. You know, unblock it. And so they did. And we bought the ticket. And then we went, rushed off and got the passports. That was relatively painless, unbelievably. Once we got it from the continent, we had to go and get them made up in this special little shop. And then we're getting a taxi to the airport. We, the ex came up uh, and uh, saw us off. We got in the taxi, we left. She called us, said she'd left something in the back. So we had to go back in the taxi and take it back. I thought, this country's got sticky fingers, right? It doesn't want to let us go. We get in the taxi again, going back to the airport. The taxi driver's pulled over by armed police. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he no! was. Yeah, I don't know why to this day, uh, but they're all armed. I mean, yeah. so it seems dramatic to you and I. And they're but properly armed. Standard, they're yeah. machine guns. You know, they're not holstered revolvers yeah. or something and they all look a bit cash you know they don't look <laughs> like they've had a great deal of training and they gave him a talking to and he got back in and took us to the airport oh and i said to Bo, you know that moment when a plane takes off and it kicks in like when they put their throttles properly on i can't wait for that moment when, and when it happened i looked around and I thought we're getting the hell out of here and then all the way back she, she thought it was all hilarious um <laughs> you know because she'd come to the rescue as well with all the details on the phone so of course and she's right actually and she was texting all our year, because we still had phones here then for the kids. And she was um, texting them all, saying what's going on. And this whole thing started up this, I don't know, on social media with pray for Bo, she's stuck in Mexico. <laughs> and the flight took us back over Paris. We had to stop at, it was about 16 hours, stop at Dusseldorf, wait four hours there, and then fly back to Paris, and then fly back to Gatwick. Um, but I tell you, when we, when we landed in Dusseldorf, after all that, I thought, this is Europe. I can walk from here, it felt like. You know, I felt like I'm, I'm nearly at home. But, uh, yeah, it was... It was uh, well, that's that, you know, it was... Um, what a nightmare. Yeah, it wasn't too clever. No, it was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was really unnerving. I did... Because the Yucatan Pilinsula, where it was, is considered by um, people of a spiritual bent to be a very important place in the world. So what you've got is lots of um, spiritual type people doing journeys, barefoot, walking up and down the peninsula, living on berries and things and, and all the rest of it. And so there's a lot of that going on. Um, and I just, I just felt, you know, I can imagine myself this kind of ragged figure dragging a suitcase up and down the Yucatan Peninsula and people saying, yeah, he used to be a teacher back in the UK, <laughs> but he never made it home. It really felt like that. I thought you really, you really absolutely realise how far you are from home. Yeah. I mean, other things happened there. I got a parking ticket. When you get a parking ticket, they all they do is they take out the number plate from the front of your car. So you're not, I wasn't even aware that I got a parking ticket because I just didn't look for that. That was 150 quid, apparently, that I had to pay immediately if I wanted to get my credit card details back. So it wasn't, um, wasn't a happy time. But it was good. As Julie pointed out to me, when I got back two, two days late back for school, which I thought was uh, pretty good. There was a moment, perhaps you shouldn't leave this in, there was a moment when it was all kicking off at the hotel and I emailed Becky and said, look, I'm stuck in Mexico. Uh, I'm not going to be back for... It's the only two days I've ever had off in over eight years. I've never had any other time off. 
apart from those two days. So, yeah, you're never off. Yeah, so, so Becky, I can't, uh, I'm not going to be back. I'm in Mexico, God, you know, God love me. I'm, I'm stuck here. And there was a sort of a pause, and she said, well, what were you thinking of doing with year 10, 7 and 8? I said, you've got the thinking I've got other things on my... I think she thought I was swinging the leg and that I was just having another yeah. couple of days. I said to Mike, this is serious, mate. I am yeah. stuck here. So he said, to, he, to, be, to his credit, he said, forget all that. People just, waving guns in my face. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, you know, you get yourself home. Anyway, that's that. So teaching, though, isn't it? Yeah. That is so teaching what are you doing with your... Well, no, that, well that, that was the thing, yeah. And I came back and they were all sort of, well, you didn't... You didn't um, you, yes? Right. Little, but it doesn't matter. Go on. Can I get some information from that computer very quickly? Um, what is it you need? I need the asset number of it and what its actual name is. Well, for sure, yeah. I mean, Blimey. yeah, I just never, never been asked that, that before. But yes, that was the thing. Nobody, um, people, when you're in the cocoon here of teaching and somebody says, I'm stuck in Mexico, all they are is back at school, there are lessons uncovered, what yeah. was he doing? No one, and that, that is, you make a good point actually. I remember on a slightly more maudlin note, the day uh, last September when my mother died, but she'd been ill for a tremendously long time um, with dementia and so on, so it was, you know, uh, sad rather than tragic, um, but it's still shocking nonetheless. And I remember the next day, I was up and I was in my suit and I was putting my shoes on and I thought, well, hold on a minute, your mum just died, don't go to mm. school. But that's the level of yeah. how much you're in the machine, isn't it? That yeah. You, but that was that was definitely that. Yeah, that was that's no disrespect to Becky. She was just um, had, had a busy day ahead of her. Yeah, and it's was. just what we what, what are we, we going to do? do? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Same. Thank you. You're welcome. Appreciate it. So uh, yeah, and obviously Bo and all of her friends. There's still lots of pictures of uh, you know Bo in Dusseldorf Airport. You know, all like this, like they are, and then in Paris <laughs> Airport, all like this, and then in Gatwick when we got back. It even got a mention at the prom. Did it? Because she was prom queen. And uh, she, yeah, well, Perfect. of course she was. And uh, and uh, Barry said, you know, and the and the and the and the prom queen is is Bo, and it's lucky she's made it here all the way from Mexico, you know, <laughs> as a kind of a standing joke for the rest of the year. But uh, yeah, I won't be rushing back there again. Sounds genuinely terrifying. It's not a place yeah, well, I'd cope with going to. I don't not, think. I mean, Never it's... mind getting stuck. And with all the tension since Trump as well, yeah. it must have been. Yeah, the cartels scary. and Trump, and the fact that. Nobody's really, you know, lots of people, they live very different, you know, they haven't got much. So the very fact that you're standing there as a white tourist means you're sort of, you might as well be a multimillionaire because you made it there. Yeah. You know, how did you get here if yeah. you haven't got, and some people are under immense pressure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wouldn't recommend it. No. <laughs> are you familiar with of Mice and Men? I've taught it, Nick. Well, of course, then. You know how, you know the significance of the of the pond at the beginning. Yes. You know, it's absolutely key that you get the right feel from that, isn't it? You know, it's almost like the Garden of Eden. It's where they start from and come back to, and, and it's, yep. it's beautiful, and Lenny remembers it and, and runs back there and so on. So Steinbeck spent a significant amount of time describing what it was that he wanted us to, uh, you know, feel about it. And it's like, I won't read you the whole first page, which is all description, because we've had all that, which is uh, that. And then they've, they've gone there, and they've, uh, let me get the right part there. And Harry's reading this, right? I said, Harry, can you read this uh, bit? I read books now. I don't let the students read it anymore. This is in my early days when I used to let them do it. But it loses all meaning. There's literally no point. You know, nobody knows what's going on. So you might as well. Anyway, Harry came to this. Uh, so they've just had their whole big argument about the 
food and the beans and all the rest of it. And, yep. the, and the sun's going down. And it says, <clears throat> The flame of the sunset lifted from the mountaintops and dusk came into the valley and a half-darkness came in among the willows and the sycamores. A big carp rose in the surface, to the surface of the pool, gulped air and then sank mysteriously into the dark water again, leaving widening rings on the water. Overhead the leaves whisked again and little puffs of willow cotton blew down and landed on the pool's surface. Now, if I had to pick one word out of there to uh, get wrong and spoil the whole effect that Steinbeck's created, Harry found it, because he read this, he read, The flame of the sunset lifted from the mountaintops and dust came into the valley and a half-darkness came in among the willows and the sycamores. A big crack rose to the surface of the pool, gulped air and then sank mysteriously into the dark water again, leaving widening rings on the water. I mean, forevermore, that, guard, that spot is now a toilet, you know. <laughs> It was very hard to recover from that. <laughs> and so it's right up there with the other... Who did it in year 11 when... Have you taught um, Jekyll and Hyde? No, but I've read it. The, I've uh, it's it. the bit at the beginning when the child gets trampled. Oh, and all yes. the women are raging against as wild as harpies they are. As wild as herpes, a student <laughs> read that as. Yeah. But that was brilliant, that one. A crack <laughs> floated to the surface. Uh, and old Harry, they didn't even notice, though. I had such fun uh, talking to Nick after school this week and I just thought those couple of little stories at the end there about teaching English literature, absolutely classic. And yeah, we've totally and 100% all been there. But what a story about getting stuck in Mexico, absolutely amazing. So um, I'm gonna close the show, continuing with the theme of cheering us all up um, with some embarrassing moments from uh, teaching. Um, now, I think my own personal, well, I mean, God, I've been teaching 20 years, so it, 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 there's, a, there's a wide variety, um, but certainly I have slipped on a banana skin uh, outside the school gates of my old school in front of a load of year 12 and 13s. And it took quite a while to live that one down. And whenever I tell people this, they think, no, oh, I, I thought that they slipping on a banana skin thing was only in the cartoons. Well, so did I, until it actually happened to me. And I skidded, I'd say about a metre and a half. You literally skate on the skin, uh, just like in the cartoons. And yeah, that was in front of all of the, the sixth form. Uh, so, so that was pretty embarrassing. And a friend of mine uh, messaged me earlier to say, um, the only embarrassing moment she has that doesn't make her sound like a bad teacher I mean, come on, uh, is when I was telling my form group off and fell backwards into the recycling bin. It was a big blue box in front of the whiteboard. I was going full guns about respect, etc. And as I stepped back for the moment of silence before finishing, I was snared at the back of the knee uh, level by the thing and basically fell headfirst into it. The kids didn't even dare laugh, laugh for a second. But then, of course, it was game over. Now, I have a fantastic story uh, relating to being a teacher who is heavy with child uh, from someone I shall call Kathy. She says, I was teaching my year 11s when pregnant with my daughter and it became clear that they had zero idea about human biology. I decided that I was okay with answering questions about my pregnancy. You see, that was your mistake, Kathy, but never mind. Best question came from an, uh, uh, a hockey player. 
don't know why she gives me that detail. Uh, but here, apparently they said, Miss, you know that labour is supposed to hurt? And I replied, yes, I have heard that. And then uh, the reply came, why do women do it more than once? I said, well, I don't know. This is my first child, but apparently it's because once you've got a really beautiful baby on your arms, you forget the pain. And then the kid said, oh, I see. But what if you get a really ugly baby? Now, at this point, Kathy said she decided that she needed to shut the conversation down. So her answer was lit, was meant to be an ask someone closer to you. I don't feel comfortable answering this one. But what came out of her mouth, what she actually said was, I don't know. Why don't you ask your mum? <laughs> Remember, in response to the question, what if you get a really ugly baby? Ah, the whole class dissolved into laughter. Uh, and the kid who asked ended up under the table wetting themselves. So it sounds like they took them uh, took it in good spirit. But yeah, again, it's one of those moments uh, when you're in the classroom and something comes out of your mouth and you just think, why on earth did I say that? But of course, another endless source of comedy in schools is not necessarily the kids, um, but the staff and their relationships. Because Sometimes members of staff will form relationships, sometimes serious. I know lots of couples who've met and got married through school, but sometimes not so serious and potentially quite embarrassing. So at my previous school, um, a friend that I shall call Jack uh, got together with another member of staff that I will call Fenella, and she was quite exotic. Uh, we, we all knew they were deeply unsuited. Um, so they had a, a, a torrid um, relationship for a few, maybe a few days, maybe, maybe a couple of weeks, you know. Um, but Jack quickly realised that um, Fenella was not for him and dealt with it in the uh, usual fine way that upstanding gentlemen deal with these situations and just tried to avoid her. Uh, didn't, you know, officially end it or anything, just thought, the plan is I'll, I'll avoid her, which given that they worked in the same school was, was an interesting decision to have taken. In his defence, he was very young. Um, and this culminated in him realising on a Friday evening that she was looking for him, panicking, shutting himself into a classroom, locking the door, turning the lights off, and hiding under the table. Now, our classrooms were all on a master key. So unsurprisingly, Fenella had a key. So having seen him enter the classroom and then the lights go off, she unlocks the classroom, turns the lights on and says to Jack sitting under the desk, Jack, you're being really weird. And he replied, you reckon? Yeah, it kind of went down in history. He still hasn't lived it down. Well, I'm still telling the story and it was nearly 20 years ago. I have another one. This is from a friend who says, I used to do great break duty with a maths teacher who told me that he was engaged to a girl at university. He was with her for three years and 
ultimately he decided that the relationship was uh, not for him and he didn't want to continue with it. So in order to let her down gently, he told her that, that he was gay. <laughs> I mean, you know, again, I guess he was young and he presumably thought he was just being kind. This was a good 10 years on, she says, and he was by this stage married to a woman with a baby. She you know, just laughed and said, oh, that was a bit cowardly. And she thought that was the end of the story, but it wasn't because it turns out that the year teen in the school had a lovely young female teacher who also taught maths. And my friend said, I'd never noticed, but they didn't ever speak to each other, ever. And I'd never picked up on it, but basically this was the girl. And so she'd got the job in the summer, turned up that September, and his whole lie was exposed. Ah, and she says, I think he was telling me before it got out and trying to do damage limitation. <laughs> so um, final story, uh, to classroom story from a maths teacher called Mark. And it's a story that illustrates the perils of assumed knowledge in the classroom. Always check what your students do and don't understand people. It's very important. So he says in his PGCE placement year, he taught a week long Star Wars themed maths lesson, series of maths lessons. So a whole week, I mean, maths in our school, that's every day. And he says the last ses session of the week, a student asked me, sir, what is Star Wars? And, you know, he thought, oh, clearly one very daft student. So he asked the rest of the class, so, you know, what, so what is Star Wars? And they all looked at him blankly and only one kid raised their hand. So he says, he was like, well, hold on, guys. Nobody knows what Star Wars is. And I've been doing Star Wars themed lessons because it was May the 4th, get it? Um, and you've not once asked me what it is. And they said, oh, we just thought it was fun and very strange, especially when you played that scary war music, <laughs> which I presume was the Imperial March. Amazing. So very important. Um, Mark obviously thought that he was doing some fantastically fun lessons, completely unbeknownst to him. The kids had no idea what was going on. <laughs> well, that's going to be it from me this morning. And I do hope that the second half of my show has made you smile and genuine offer. If you want a copy of my summary list from Raj Pasod's Staying Sane, please do reach out to me on Twitter because I am more than happy to send it to you. I would highly recommend reading the book itself in full, but I know that's quite an undertaking, especially when you're really busy. So if you think the strategies will be helpful to you, then get in touch and I'll send you the list. On Teachers Talk Radio this afternoon, we've got Joe Hammond as usual at one o'clock. And then later tonight, we've got Miss Saeed at eight o'clock who has a wonderful guest, uh, Abed Ahmed, who needs no introduction if you're on Edu Twitter or if you watched Educating Essex. He's a teacher with a stammer who now specialises in supporting other students with the same condition. Miss Saeed is, of course, a Senko, so I'm sure that will be a fantastic interview and worth hearing. 
for now, I'm signing off for the week. Next week, I will be interviewing Ryan Wilson, author of Let That Be a Lesson. Ryan describes his book as a celebration of teachers. He says, teaching is the most fun, noble, rewarding thing you can do. It's full of funny stories, but the job is also tough, frustrating and undervalued. I hope this book offers a realistic view of the job. And he says, imagine this is going to hurt, but for the classroom. So do join me at the same time next week. But in the meantime, do stay sane and have a lovely weekend. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.